thank you once again for joining us, whether you're here on Zoom with us or catching up later. We are in week two of a look at the book of Revelation we're calling It Is Not the End of the World as You Know It or as We Know It. Uh, for a long time, Revelation has been understood to be some map, some code, some hidden uh, message about what the end of the world will look like, and people have accused different people of being antichrist, and they've looked at the stars and the newspaper headlines and, and what's being reported on cable TV uh, to try and decode when Jesus is going to show back up and what things <clears throat> excuse me, are going to happen uh, at the end of time or in the end times. And uh, our contention as we read through this scripture is that that's not what the book of Revelation is primarily about. There is uh, some stuff about the end of time. Uh, but that's not the purpose and the message of the book of Revelation. A few things to help us, a little review from last week. One, it's written to first century churches, real churches, real congregations with real issues, real people who are trying to figure out what it means to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of a world that doesn't look like Jesus, that doesn't appreciate the message of Jesus, that doesn't understand where they're coming from. Uh, it's more about their present than it is about the future. There are future promises. Jesus will come again. All things will be made new. He will wipe away every tear from, the, from our eyes. That's all in there. But it's not meant to help us figure out when those things will happen or how those things will happen. Uh, it's not meant to be taken literally. There's a lot of symbolism in here. There's, there's story and meaning and purpose. It's, it's much like a political cartoon where John is writing and he is, he's calling out the powers that be by giving them names and imagery that is ugly and meaningful. And uh, it's more about how to be faithful to God in the midst of trying times. That's the message of Revelation. I know it's hard, but be faithful. Uh, these two chapters are messages that are written to seven churches, seven actual congregations. These churches are in uh, Asia Minor. They're in modern-day Turkey, and uh, they, they were known cities. They were important cities. They were cities of trade and commerce and government, and there was a circular mail route. So what would have happened was John has this vision. Jesus gives him a message. John writes it down and sends it to the seven churches. They would read it, and they'd pass it on to the next church. Uh, some people think that John probably knew these congregations, that perhaps he had visited them, had spent time at each of them, or that maybe he was an overseer, like a bishop, who, who had, a, who had a, a relationship with all these churches, so they knew who John was. John's on Patmos in exile for preaching the gospel of Jesus, and he's given this message. Each one of these short little messages to the churches starts with an image of Jesus that we saw in chapter one. And this is key to understanding how to be faithful. The key to understanding how to be faithful, if you get nothing else, is to remember who Jesus is. If we remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus has won the victory over death and the grave, then we will be able to be faithful. We'll be determined not to give in to sin and destruction and we will be able to overcome. Uh, each of these messages to the churches are addressed to the messenger or the angel of the churches, and we are not exactly sure what that means. Some people say that each church might have a guardian angel or might have a representation in heaven, or maybe there's just a spirit about each church, or, or maybe it could even possibly mean the pastor 
of each local congregation. Either way, imagine getting a letter addressed to your church from Jesus the Christ. Imagine him writing, Dear Dwelling Church, and listing some things about us. This is incredible and intense. Uh, and there are some things that Jesus says that are reassuring, and he, he commends them. And there are some things that are challenging and rebukes, and he even threatens some of these churches with judgment. One more thing before we dive in. It's important to know that these, this book of Revelation is not written to Rome. Oh, John will call Rome Babylon in this entire message. Babylon was an ancient enemy of the Jewish people. They had attacked uh, the Jewish people, carried off the best and the brightest. They had destroyed the temple of God. And one of the goals of Babylon was to assimilate the people of God into the Babylonian culture. So they would, they would take the best and the brightest. They would teach them how to be Babylonian. They thought, rather than kill all these people, let's make them our people. Let's make them think like us, talk like us, eat like us, worship like us. And so that was their plan, assimilation. And that's what John's going to call Rome. The Roman Empire is the empire of the time. The, the empire of Babylon has fallen centuries ago, and now it's, it's the Roman Empire. And Rome is just like Babylon. They want to assimilate. They want you to abide by their customs and their rules and their gods and their ways. And by calling Rome Babylon, John is reminding these people that this is a spiritual struggle. It's a struggle of good and evil. But rather than rebuking Rome for being evil, this is not a letter to them. It's a letter to the church, to the faithful, to the Christians. It's a letter to remind them that they need to be faithful. We already know that Rome or Babylon or Egypt, whoever the, the powers that be are, are going to fail. On this side of history, the Roman Empire is no more. Psalms tells us that we need not trust in horses or chariots or, or princes or kings or presidents or whoever because their plans, they die and their plans go to the grave with them. But we hope in the Lord who is everlasting and whose kingdom has no end. So we know that Rome will go away someday and we know that Babylon will go away someday. We know that the United States of America will go away someday, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. So how we live in response is of utmost importance. Rather than just rebuking the bad guys, Jesus is interested in challenging and ensuring and emboldening those who follow Jesus. So let's walk through these passages rather than read it all at once. As we typically would, I'm going to read them one by one so we can walk through them. There is a lot of information in here, and I won't be able to explain it all. I went really long last week. I'm going to try and keep my message shorter this week so that you don't fall asleep. But there's so much good stuff, and it helps us. Because if we know who Jesus is addressing, if we know why this is being written, what's going on in their world, it helps make sense of all the things that are going to come after this. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start with the message, message to the church at Ephesus. Write this to the church at Ephesus. These are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. I also know that you don't put up with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles but are not, and you have found them to be liars. You've shown endurance and put up with a lot for my name's sake, and you haven't gotten tired. But I have this against you. You have let go of the love you had at first. So remember the high point from which you have fallen. Change your hearts and lives and do the things you did at first. If you don't, I'm coming to you. I will move your lampstand from its place if you don't change your hearts and lives. 
But you have this in your favor. You hate what the Nicolaitans are doing, which I also hate. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I will allow those who emerge victorious to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. This is the word of the Lord, or at least a portion of the word of the Lord for us today. So we have here a message to Ephesus. Ephesus was an important, a chief urban center uh, in Asia. It was a government seat for the Romans. There was a temple to the goddess of fertility, Artemis. There was a temple to Julius Caesar. Um, it says this is uh, the words of, that, of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, we already were told in chapter 1 that the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And, and the lampstands are the churches. Like we light this candle, the, the lampstand was meant to demonstrate the presence of God in the temple. And so churches oftentimes will light a candle to represent the fact that God is with us by God's spirit. And so uh, Revelation has Jesus walking amongst these churches, holding the churches and their angels, their messengers in his hands, conveying that it's Christ's church, that Christ sees and knows and is amongst us, which is both reassuring and sometimes nerve-wracking. Because if you've ever gotten caught doing something when your parents uh, were looking and you thought they weren't, you know that feeling of, oh, I have been caught Jesus starts out addressing the good of this church. They don't put up with evil. They have endured. They, they know right from wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. They know right from wrong. They, they, they know what is good and godly teaching, and they know what is corrupt. Um, they reject the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We, we don't know exactly who this group is that has been lost to history and time, but most of the people think that these were folks who, who were teaching something contrary to the way of Jesus. They were teaching some kind of compromise, that they were teaching it's okay to worship both the Roman gods and Jesus, or they were teaching that maybe we should have an insurrection and we should kill all these Roman people and we'll be the ones in power, or, or maybe they were teaching uh, the church that it was okay to engage in some of the sexually immoral practices that the Romans were a part of. Either way, whatever it is, they were not up to good, but the church at Ephesus knew that, and they rejected their claims. They knew that none of those things looked like Jesus. But then Jesus says, but I have this against you, which is a big gulp moment. You don't want to hear those words from Jesus. He says, you have let go of the love that you had at first. Some translations have it. You have forgotten your first love. Their zeal, their passion is gone. They have the right beliefs. They know the right stuff, but it's, it's in their head. It's not in their heart. It's not in their body. They have not been loving God with their whole heart as they have been with their whole mind. They have not been loving their neighbors as themselves. They've forgotten their love and, and faith without love is, is nothing. Uh, love is the, the greatest. God is love. And so a church without love is not a church that models a healthy relationship with God. And Jesus says, if you don't change your ways, if you don't repent, if you don't find that love again, I'm going to remove your lampstand. That the, the threat, the rebuke, the, the challenge is if you don't change, I'm going to take my presence from your church. 
And if you don't have the presence of God in a church, what you have is a country club, a social hour, and that is not something that brings life or transformation or freedom. It's not a place a church wants to find themselves. But if they can, if they can rekindle that love for God and neighbor, they can eat from the tree of life. They can have eternal life. They can be in right relationship with God. The next addressed congregation is the church at Smyrna. Write this to the angel of the church at Smyrna. These are the words of the one who is first and the last, who died and came back to life. I know your hardship and poverty, though you are actually rich. I also know the hurtful things that have been spoken about you by those who say they are Jews, though they are not, but are really Satan's synagogue. Don't be afraid of what you are going to suffer. Look, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison in order to test you. You will suffer hardship for 10 days, but be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Those who emerge victorious won't be hurt by the second death. And so here we have a letter with no rebuke. The church at Smyrna is doing well. There's no correction for them. Jesus says he was the first and the last, referencing the Alpha and the Omega, reminding them that Jesus is, in fact, God, that he is sovereign, that he had died and has risen from the dead. He has come back to life, which is good news for a church that's experiencing hardship and struggle. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is victorious. And when you look around and you wonder and you're hurting and you're struggling, don't forget those things. It says that Jesus knows their hardship and their poverty. No, having someone know your situation is comforting. You are not forgotten. It's likely that their poverty is a result of not giving in to the ways of Rome. They weren't giving in to emperor worship. Smyrna was a wealthy city, so for the people to, to be impoverished, it means they probably had lost jobs or livelihood, had been ostracized because they, they failed to do the things that they were asked to do. They wouldn't worship uh, the Roman emperor. They wouldn't worship the pagan gods. They, they wouldn't participate in guilds that were meant to honor uh, the Roman gods. And, and they wouldn't go to the temples to worship and give offerings. So they were, probably, they were probably missing out. They were probably pushed to the margins of society because of their faith in Jesus. They were trying to hold on to what is true and what they knew. They knew that Jesus alone was worthy of worship and praise. And it cost them. There's wealth and prosperity all around them, and they were missing out, which had to be challenging and hard at times. But Jesus says, but you're actually rich, not rich in material wealth, but rich in spirit. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, because we, we blessed are the poor, it says in Luke, because all, all the money and all the things around us can easily become distractions. These folks are rich because they know God, because God is with them, because Jesus is present, because they have set, been set free from sin and death. It says they're in a tussle with people who call themselves Jews but are not really Jews. They belong to the synagogue of Satan, which is some pretty harsh language from our, from our friend Jesus. Um, these are probably people who were Jewish ethnically and religiously but were compromising with Rome. They were a part of the Roman system. They had turned their back on being faithful Jews and, and were more Roman than they were Jewish. Uh, they, they 
there is no religion, there is no group that is immune from this idea of compromising and assimilating with the world around them. It's happening to the Jewish people. And, and one of the problems with the early churches, they were evangelistic. They were taking the message of Jesus and they were telling everyone and inviting them to be a part of this new group, this new thing called the way. And it stirred up trouble. People didn't like it because if you're not participating in the ways of Rome, then you become an enemy to Rome. And so apparently these compromising Jews were, were having struggle with the uncompromising church. And now there's this back and forth. It says that some of you are going to be imprisoned for 10 days. Satan's trying to test you. Again, numbers mean something here, and there's more symbolism than there is literalism in this text. It's probably referencing the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel uh, is a story of Daniel and his friends, and they are taken by Babylon. They're part of the group that's, that's carried away and going to be assimilated into the Babylonian Empire. And before the, the young people, there's this great feast of Babylonian food, and, and Daniel and his friends say, no, we're not going to eat that. And they're like, you better eat it or you're going to be in trouble. And they said, no, test us. Test us for 10 days. We're going to eat our kosher diet. We're going to eat a vegetarian diet for 10 days and see if we're not better off and healthier. And so I think what's happening here is the Jewish the congregation that had become the Christian congregation that studied the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't have texts like this. They knew the story of Daniel and his friends who had been faithful for 10 days. And so when they hear we're going to be tested for 10 days, it's a reminder that you, you are going to emerge victorious. Despite not having the wealth and prosperity that your neighbors have, you will be better off. It's saying that, that this challenging time is only short, it's temporary. Uh, no matter how long it is, it is only temporary. And the promise is this, you won't be hurt by the second death. That there is more beyond this life. That there is another life to come and another death to come. And if you are faithful to Jesus, to the Christ, you will not be touched by the second death. We've got to move on to the next message from the church, or to the church at Pergamum. Write this to the angel of the church in Pergamum. These are the words of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you are living right where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name, and you didn't break faith with me, even at the time that Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you, because you have, you have some there who follow Balaam's teaching. Balaam had taught Balak to trip up the Israelites so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have some who follow the Nicolaitans' teaching. So change your hearts and lives. If you don't, I am coming to you soon, and I will make war on them with the sword that comes from my mouth. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I will give those who emerge victorious some of the hidden manna to eat. I will also give to each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except the one who receives it. And so here we have uh, Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth. It's a sword that cuts to the truth. It cuts, it reveals what is most true about people. It's not a sword meant to, to kill us in body, but it's meant to cut right to the truth of things, to expose who we really are. And he references the fact that they, they, they live where Satan's throne is, which is a pretty 
harsh language. Again, we're referencing Rome and the powers that be. It's not Satan's actual throne, but Satan's at work in the workings of Rome, just like Satan was at work in the workings of Babylon, and just like Satan was at work in, in the workings of Egypt. Satan uses the powers and principalities of this world to bring evil and destruction on the world. Satan can be at work in organizations, governments, maybe even churches. And so this is where Satan has its throne. Pergamum has lots of administrative and civic buildings. If you had, if you had court, you went to Pergamum. It, it was a center of Roman civic life. They had libraries. There was a temple to a previous emperor there. And there was a giant altar to the god Zeus. It was a seat of authority and power. And Jesus calls it for what it is. It's the, the seat and throne of Satan where Satan lives. Uh, and apparently there's some persecution here. One of their church members, Antipas, has been murdered, martyred because of his witness to the gospel of Jesus. But others are following the teachings of Balaam. Now, Balaam is another Old Testament reference. Balaam uh, at one point has a talking donkey, if that story rings <clears throat> a bell to you. But Balaam was used to deceive the Israelites into idolatry and wanton, destructive behavior. And it seems like that was happening at the church in Pergamum, that there was someone or a group of someones who, who were teaching the people that it's okay to participate with these, with these civic things and these other gods and these temple rituals. A lot of times it, it was probably about food sacrificed to idols. When you went to the meat market, they had, they had slaughtered the bull, but they had offered that bull to the god Zeus. Or they'd offered that, that bull as an act of worship to the emperor at, that in charge. And, and so do we eat food sacrificed to idols? These things were meant to be acts of worship to these false gods. And the Christian church had to wrestle with, do we eat these things? Uh, there's sexual immorality. There's a lot of, of lack of control. And uh, it often showed up in pagan worship rituals where there was just some immoral behavior that was not Christ-like, that was not self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And apparently that stuff is making its way into the church. And Jesus says, so change, or I'm going to come with my sword and I'm going to show you who you really are. I'll expose what is hidden. I will make known the truth about you which if you're hiding things, if there's things inside you that are dark and destructive, you don't want known. But Jesus says, if you can be victorious, I will give you hidden manna. Manna, another Old Testament reference where God provided the food. And so, Pergolum, if you're, if you're struggling to eat because you, you can't go to the meat market, you can't visit the butcher and, and get meat to eat because it's been sacrificed to Zeus, God will feed you. I will give you hidden manna. God will be your provider. Don't worry about the marketplace. And it says they're going to give you a white stone. We're not sure. There's not a consensus on what that means. But, but one of the most convincing and I think the most applicable here is that white stones were often used as an invitation to a wedding. And that was your ticket in to the banquet. And, and it's, a, it's a reference to the fact that there will be a feast in the kingdom of God, what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. When heaven and earth uh, come together, there will be a great big feast with the finest wines and the best meats, and you will have your ticket in. And, and in the age to come, in the life to come, you will not go hungry. You will not miss out if you can be faithful now. One more, the church at Thyatira says this. Write this to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira. 
These are the words of God's Son, whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine brass. I know your works, your love and faithfulness, your service and endurance. I also know the works of those who you have... I also know that works you have done most recently are even greater than those you did at first. But I have this against you. You put up with that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. You allow her to teach and to mislead my servants into committing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to change her heart and life, but she refuses to change her life of prostitution. Look, I'm throwing her into, onto a sickbed. I'm casting those who have committed adultery with her into terrible hardship. If they don't change their hearts from following her practices, I will even put her children to death with disease. Then all the churches will know that I'm the one who examines minds and hearts, and that I will give to each of you what your actions deserve. As for the rest of you in Thyatira, those of you who don't follow this teaching and haven't learned the so-called deep secrets of Satan, I won't burden you with anything else. Just hold on to what you have until I come. To those who emerge victorious, keeping my practice until the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like pottery, just as I received authority from my Father. I will also give them the morning star. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so there are a couple more messages to churches that we will look at next week. But this last one to the church of Thyatira. Thyatira uh, was a trade city. It was full of trade guilds where you belonged similar maybe to like what a union is here. They had a plumbing union and a bricklayers union. Uh, there were craftsmen and potters and uh, makers of fine linen. Uh, it, was a very, it was a commercial city, lots of trade and shopping going on. And Jesus is, shows up with eyes of fire. They are piercing. They can see right through us. And feet that are solid and unshakable when we are sometimes shaken by the world around us. He says, I know your works, your love and faithfulness. You've done really good. Some of the stuff that you've done recently is even better than when you started. Like, this is so good, church. Great job. But I have this against you. You put up with that woman Jezebel. Jezebel, again, is an Old Testament reference to a queen who misled the people of God. She's from the book of Kings and the time of Elijah and Elisha. And she opposed the people of God and the prophets of God. And she encouraged pagan worship. She was an anti-God woman. And, and this word Jezebel is thrown about to accuse any woman who stirs up trouble. And that's not a healthy thing. But here Jesus is saying that someone in the church is acting just like Jezebel. They are leading people astray. They're offering secret knowledge and secret insight. If only you would come and be a part of what we're doing. If you would engage in the things we are doing, you will fully understand. This is the same temptation given to Adam and Eve at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. If only you would have this fruit, then you would become like God. That's what's going on at the church at Thyatira. They're being offered secret insight and it's infidelity. It talks about She's given her life to prostitution. That could be literal prostitution. That was a part of the ancient world. But it's also, I think, likely referring to cheating on God, that we are adulterous people, that we give our hearts to other things. And that's a, that's a comparison that shows up over and over and over again in Scripture, that the church is meant to be the bride of Christ, but sometimes we cheat on God and we're unfaithful and look for other things to fulfill us or satisfy us, meet our needs, to give us insight that we have been unfaithful. 
and Jesus has harsh words. He says he's going to throw her on her sick bed, and, he, and he's going to bring hardship on those who lie with her. But it's interesting because the judgment is meant to bring about repentance. He says, I'm going to bring about hardship. And then if they don't repent, Jesus is not trying to give up or abandon anybody. He's trying to get their attention. You're going to go through hard times because you have given in to this sin. And then if you don't change, then you're going to be in trouble. Then there's going to be hardship. And, and her, even on her children, which probably references those who follow her teachings. Jesus is comparing her practices versus Jesus' practices. Her ways versus God's ways. How we live matters. What we do, it is not enough that we gather and we worship and we sing the right songs if we go out and we're seduced by the powers of the world. It doesn't matter that we gather for worship from time to time if we go out and we live like sons and daughters of Satan. The promise is that they would have authority if they are faithful that they would get to rule with Jesus, and that they would get the morning star who is Jesus himself. So what do we do with all of this? If, if this is all for churches back then, do, does it have anything to say to us now? The answer is yes. When we look at scripture in its original context, I think it makes it more powerful. It has lots of things to say to us because the problems in scripture as, are as universal as the truths in scripture. And being tempted away from faithfulness to God is as ancient as humanity. From, from the Garden of Eden to Abraham, to the, to the Hebrew people on the Exodus trying to go to the Promised Land, to, to the kings and prophets of Israel, to the disciples who walked with Jesus, and the Pharisees who questioned and clashed with Jesus, to the church and the letters of the New Testament who were trying to be faithful but were so caught up in this other stuff. I think we sometimes forget that this faith thing is a battle. There is a war taking place between good and evil, and most of the battle is unseen. It's spiritual, and there are things happening around us that we are unaware of. And some of our issues are different today than they were back then. We don't have temples to other gods that, that meet and, and maybe humans are sacrificed to. But we have plenty of things that can distract us and dull the voice of God in our lives. Uh, in fact, I think sometimes it might be harder for us that the, the gods and powers and, and idols in our world today are more subtle than they were back then. If we were walking and there was a giant altar to Zeus where they were butchering cows, it would be easy for us to say, that's not meat I'm going to eat. Or maybe it'd be easier to say, that's not meat I'm going to eat. I'm going to go over here where they don't do that. Uh, but I think the gods of money and sex and power and comfort and respectability and politics are harder to see. They're harder to identify because we don't build temples to them, because we don't sacrifice to them, because we can participate in all the things of church life without realizing that these other things have gotten our allegiance and our attention and our devotion. All these things can keep us stuck where we are and mute or, uh, and and stunt our growth in Christ, and they can all lure us away with promises of wealth and power and a seat at the table and people who like us and, and all our dreams coming true. Some of it's even stuff we see as good. Our country has so much good and we use lots of Christian language and, and things like freedom and liberty are good, but all of those things are not necessary in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Our freedom comes from him. Our liberty comes from him. And so we want to be faithful to, to that kind of freedom and that kind of liberty, even at the expense of other kinds of liberty. I think that 
that if Jesus was writing this book of Revelation today, he would address us. There, there would be to the church in Wichita or maybe to the church in North America, and he would have some things to say to us that we still experience these same problems, that there are still false gods and, and powers at work. There are still thrones and seats of Satan. There are still Balaam's and Jezebel's. There are still people compromising the truth of God for power and, and comfort, wealth, and, and a seat at the table. If you have your scriptures in front of you, you can look at the end of each of these little messages to the churches. It says this. Uh, if you can hear. In some translations it has it, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is more poetic and, and more literal to what John was writing. But I like the practicality of the Common English Bible that I read. If you can hear. The issue is that sometimes we're not hearing what the Spirit of God is saying. We're where we are and we're comfortable and we assume we're good. Sometimes it's because we stop asking God to reveal the truth to us. Sometimes it's because we stop thinking that we still have work to do. Sometimes it's because we declare ourselves good, that we have done enough, learned enough, asked forgiveness enough, prayed enough, served enough, and we're good. We have this, this teaching in the Church of the Nazarene called Entire Sanctification, and, and people think that they've arrived and that they, that they no longer need to wrestle with sin and darkness, and they're, and they're deceived. We do. It's a battle because it's around us. It's in our systems. It's in the air we breathe. It's, it's in our bodies. And, and we're not even always aware of it or choosing it, but it is out there. So we need to ask the Spirit of God to speak to us. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As we end today, I want to ask some questions. I want us to, to spend some time in reflection. I want us to say, God, would you speak to me? Would you search my heart? Would you know what's going on inside me? Would you show me where I need some work? I think there are things if Jesus was writing to us that he would commend us for. And he would say, church in North America, you were doing this well. And you were doing this well. But as I watch the news and as I scroll social media, I think there's a lot of things that Jesus would have to say to us about how we respond to injustice in the world, about how we respond to people that vote differently than us, about compromises that we're willing to make in order to get our agenda passed, about the things that matter most when we're looking for a church community to belong to, or what a church should even look like, or how a church should spend its money and its time, about how we talk and relate to our neighbors, how we spend our personal time and money. I think Jesus has some things that he would challenge us on, and he would ask us to change our ways on. If we wanna be faithful to this Jesus, and we do, I pray you do, because this Jesus is the only one we can trust. This Jesus is the only one who can set us free. This Jesus is the only one who can give us life everlasting, forgiveness and grace and peace eternal. If we wanna be faithful, we need to do the work of examination. If the gods of this age are more hidden and ingrained in our culture and in our thinking, we need God to ask God to open up our eyes. If we want to be victorious, we need to ask God to change us, to fill us with God's spirit. We need to repent and seek forgiveness often, daily, not because we're constantly choosing to rebel against God, but because there's so much around us that could possibly distract us. Would you pray with me before we spend some time in reflection? God, I, I ask that you would reveal to us in these moments your heart. 
that you would help us to see, that you would help us to hear. God, we want ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. God, help us to hear your truth. Help us to be changed by it, convicted by it. God, help us to repent where we need to repent, to turn around where we need to turn around. Help us to find uh, a new way. God, help us to have courage where we need courage. Help us to have boldness. Help us to have uh, a firm foundation as we try to live faithfully in this world that is such a mess at times. God, help us to be more like you than we are like ourselves. Help us to be more like you than we are like our nation. Help us to be more like you than we are like our neighbors. We want to be faithful to you and not to the ways of empire, not to Rome or Babylon or Egypt or even the United States of America, not to anyone but the God who has loved us, the God who gave, the God who loved, the God who died on a cross and set us free, the God who is resurrected and is ruling and reigning on high. God, have your way in us in these moments. Amen.